Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. I'm here with my co-hosts, Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky. Hello. Hey, Aaron. Aaron, Evan, hello. How are you guys? Aaron, who is on the show this week? Very excited about this episode. Got excited when the book arrived in my mail, was excited while reading it, and then the excitement continued to talking about it. Uh, I talked to Abraham Josephine Reisman. Uh, she is the author of Ringmaster, Vince McMahon and the Unmaking of America, which due to me not being able to read press releases is not actually out yet, but is available for pre-order. It will be out in March. I don't know if we've done that before on this show. I hope so. Sorry, guys. Uh, I talked to someone about a book that only I could read and no one else (laughs) could read. Uh, She has previously been the author of a biography of Stan Lee from Marvel. I kind of wanted to get into what putting together one of these biographies entails, especially for both of these are living subjects who have an immense number of skeletons in their closet and also how she got people to reveal those skeletons in their respective closets. Uh, She's been a journalist, places like Vulture at New York Magazine, Daily Beast, and I've been into her work for a long time. Great conversation. Yeah, nothing wrong with getting some pre-orders lined up. As an author myself, I can tell you pre-orders are very important. I was like, I'm so sorry. And then I was informed that pre-orders are actually more valuable than regular <laughs> orders. So if you want to save me the embarrassment of this poor scheduling decision, go out. It like, And I'm saying this as a person who is, this is addressed in the interview, not a wrestling fan, like not a watcher of wrestling, but I've always been fascinated by wrestling's role in American life. If you are like me, you might enjoy this book that both debunks and also shows the grandeur and history of wrestling and the whole empire that Vince McMahon built. I will say, I think that um, doing an interview for a book that is not yet out in order to drive pre-orders, it's kind of a WWE move. Yes. <laughs> it's, got, it's, got big, it's got big WWE overtones. When know? it gets to be March. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Get ready. Uh, we make this show in partnership with people at Vox. Thanks so much to them for their partnership. And now here's Aaron with Abraham Josephine Reisman. Welcome, Abraham Josephine Reisman. Hi, it's truly an honor to be here. I'm sure you get that all the time, but it's nice. I just read your book about Vince McMahon, and I then started watching YouTube videos of some of the events that you describe in the book. So you have to imagine me in the mindset of someone who just watched some 1980s WWF clips. Do you remember the last thing you watched? I'm curious what was uh, on the docket. I wanted to see a little footage of Jimmy Snuka. Ah, uh, Jimmy Snuka, yes. Yes. Just because like, 
Well, this is actually a decent place to start. I am not a wrestling fan. Good. You're the target demographic. I, you know, I, the assumption was if I do my job right, people who like wrestling books will be interested hopefully in the book, but that has more to do with the topic than anything else. So my, my goal was to create something that would be appealing to total novices, total beginners, people who have no knowledge whatsoever of professional wrestling. So you are exactly in the right headspace to begin the book. <laughs> this is a weird question, but do you have any insight into people who are are going to and who are not going to enjoy wrestling? Because from an intellectual mm. standpoint, I find these concepts of kayfabe and is it real or fake intellectually fascinating. Absolutely. My actual desire to engage with it as entertainment is almost at zero. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to figure out what that is. And I can't think of that many things in my life that are like that, where I'm like, I'm fascinated by this, but also want nothing <laughs> to do with it. Oh, actually, that's a very common state for me. When it comes to comics, even, you know, not to jump ahead, but my first book was about Stan Lee. I, I reached a point with comics where it was really hard for me to enjoy it as an art form, but I've never stopped being interested in it as a product or mm. as an industry or as an art form, just not in an aesthetic engagement way, much more of an intellectual engagement way. And that's that's sort of how I feel about wrestling to a certain extent. The, I have enormous respect for that art form, enormous respect. But I've never, even when I was a teenage wrestling diehard, I didn't have an ear for the music of a wrestling match. And mm. I've never totally gotten it. I've been able to talk to enough people who do have that ear, who do have that perfect pitch, that I've been able to sort of understand from a cognitive standpoint what makes a good match. But it's hard sometimes for me to even bring myself to watch a full match because what's interesting to me is A, the words. I mean, I'm a writer, so unfortunately that's going to be where I'm predisposed, but the words that are used in the promos or I used to video edit videos. So all of the little like, sizzle reels, all of that's very interesting. And the performances, you know, I was a failed child actor. I gave up in college, but I have nothing but respect for people who can grab an audience. And I think you can appreciate, anyone can appreciate a piece of wrestling media. The match itself, I think it's just sometimes people are born with the ability to appreciate that part, and sometimes they aren't. But to, to as to say why some people get into it and some people don't, it's hard to say. One thing that I always like to point out is that there are kind of two pathways into wrestling. There's I was a kid who liked sports, and here I am in pro wrestling. And then there's the path I was on, which was I'm a kid who likes musical theater and I end up in pro wrestling. That's an interesting like uh, Venn diagram there, like sports mm -hmm. and musical theater. The thing that I feel like unifies them that's really interesting to follow in the book that I had never thought about before was these misperceptions between the people who are making the artwork and the people who are experiencing it about mm. what each other are thinking yes. and what each other think is going on. I'll never forget this one part of the book where all of the wrestlers, the people producing it, are convinced that everyone thinks it's real or, or mm. at least are saying that they're convinced everyone thinks it's real. And then any sort of a objective understanding of what is actually happening with the audience is that 99 to 100% of the people in there know it's not real, but that both sides believe that there is no sort of future if there's any acknowledgement of yeah. both people knowing what the other one thinks. I will just quickly hasten to say, I think the percentage is not 99% people who, because you will find all of these stories from the age of old kayfabe, kayfabe being the old sort of code and multipurpose word describing the fakeness of everything. You'll go back and there will be people who you think, wow, this was like an intelligent person who is skeptical, who's whatever. And they would say, yeah, no, I totally believed it was real. I completely believed it was all on the level. The point I was trying to make in that part of the book is not everyone was in on it. It's just there were a lot more people in on it than wrestling lore sort of admits to. 
wrestling lore is still kind of trapped in that kayfabe universe. Well, and you also talk about how that kayfabe is not just in the ring. Like if you want to be a wrestling hanger on and you're having a beer afterwards, yeah. like everyone has to maintain the illusion Correct. in all areas. And, and that's a way that I think really connects. And I think this is uh, literal in the book wrestling to politics. Oh yeah. There are these forms where there is no dropping of character potentially for sure. your entire life. Like you, sure. you, you get buried in whoever you've become. Yeah, absolutely. That's, I mean, <laughs> that's de rigueur now in politics. It's sort of always been true, but there was a period, I'm not saying it's a one-to-one because of wrestling, we changed this way. Maybe it's broader societal trends, but there was a period when you lived with kind of the old kayfabe system in wrestling and in politics, which was there's a big, solid, flat, foundational lie. And the flat, foundational lie is just what you're seeing is real. This is democracy at work or this is a sport at work. And either you knew that that lie was kind of made up or you didn't, but it was pretty solid and longstanding. And then you've recently entered into this world where you have what has existed in wrestling for the past, I guess, three decades or so, which is what I perhaps overambitiously decide to coin a term as neo-kayfabe. And neo-kayfabe is a foundation that's much more like a bunch of slippery boulders. It's not a flat foundation. The idea of neo-kayfabe is you are not necessarily telling the person hey, what you're seeing on this wrestling show is real. In fact, you're very emphatically saying, don't worry, it's all fake. But this one aspect of the the match is going to actually reflect what's really happening behind the scenes. Or these two guys who are wrestling tonight, even though it's a fake wrestling match, they actually hate each other. So watch out, one of them might hurt each other, hurt the other rather. So you end up with this sort of manufactured truth behind the lie. And people have trouble combating that brain hack of saying, hey, what you're seeing is fake, but I'm going to let you in on the real secret about what's going on. When you introduce that sort of brain mental schema, you can manipulate people very easily when what they're doing is not necessarily gauging the morality of what you're saying, but rather just going, is that real or not? Did that really happen? Or... Like, am I confused? When you're feeling that conflict of could this possibly this insane thing be real with could I be just being deceived like as always, you end up with a very like impressionable brain. And that's unfortunately where we are in politics right now. Uh, One of my best friends from high school is a film director. He's Mm. actually directing a Marvel movie right now, ironically. (laughs) Um, And we were flying on JetBlue together and we saw... I believe it was the first season of Laguna Beach. Oh. The reality show. Now, perfect. This is going to be harder for younger people to understand. But at this time, this was amongst the first pieces of reality TV. Mm-hmm. And not reality TV in the sense of like the um like the real, real world, world sense, whatever. but where it no. was heightened. It was manufactured, heightened. People were getting into it and yeah, like stuff absolutely. was going on and stuff did have that staged feeling of quality. But like you were saying, it seemed like it was a stage quality that was staging real relationships and scenarios. Absolutely. Reality TV picked up what wrestling was putting down at least a decade earlier. And it was interesting because he was like, we kept talking about it in terms of the filmmaking, like trying to pick up. He was like, wow, they've got two cameras. That can't really be happening, whatever. But like, like you were saying, we weren't totally convinced. Like we couldn't get to a point of being clear about exactly what we thought was going on in Laguna Beach. Exactly. You're sure that there's a level of unreality, but you're not sure that it's all fake. Like there's stuff there that seems either plausible or sometimes you go, there's no way they could fake that. And sometimes you're right. And a lot of times you're somewhere in the middle. It's not as easily distinguished as saying this is fact and this is fiction, this was scripted and this was improvised, whatever. You can't make those distinctions easily. And 
one of the things I sort of hope comes out of the book, if it has any impact at all, is to try and get us past this sort of false binary between true and false, you know, not to get too meta, but that's the trouble is we have a lot of people in power who got there by realizing that there's no actual incentive in a political or financial stance to distinguish between fact and fiction. It's not actually important if you're just trying to claw your way to the top for short-term gain, and sometimes even for very long-term gain. So anyway, but that's me getting up on my high horse. I could talk about that all day. Well, so in constructing the book and considering Vince McMahon, who for Mm. people listening who like me don't know very much about wrestling, has basically been like ground zero for everything that's happened in wrestling since the late seventies. Yeah. I mean, Vince thumbnail version, Vince McMahon is the emperor of professional wrestling in the United States and Canada raised in North Carolina for the first 12 years of his life by his mother and a stepfather allegedly abused in that time. And then at age 12, he meets his father, his birth father, that is who he'd never had any relationship with prior to that. His birth father was a guy also named Vince McMahon, Vincent James McMahon. Vince, our Vince McMahon is Vincent Kennedy McMahon. And Vincent James McMahon had abandoned the mother to whom he had been married and went back up to the Northeast and inherited his dad's wrestling promotion. The point is Vince meets his father and suddenly becomes the peasant who finds out that she's a princess from some distant kingdom. Yes. And he gets these glimpses of what his father has achieved and the wealth and the esteem and the familial happiness. And eventually Vince breaks into wrestling through his father. And then eventually he buys the company from his father, which is kind of a surprise because his father never really warmed to him. And then Vince, eventually his father dies in 1984 and Vince kind of goes on this rampage of conquest where what had been a regional economy for wrestling, this sort of regional promotion patchwork throughout the US and Canada was suddenly gobbled up by Vince McMahon and his company, the World Wrestling Federation or WWF. And very long story short after that, he takes over in 1983. By 1985, the first WrestleMania comes out. And then eventually by 2001, there are literally no competitors left. And Lately, things have gotten more complicated. He stepped down, but then he came back. There were a lot of new allegations about sexual crimes, uh, but they were not the first allegations about sexual crimes that have dogged him. Uh, And there's a lot about that in the book. So that's kind of a little thumbnail of him. But one thing that often gets lost in the discussion of him is kind of his political influence, both indirect by being a massive cultural influence on millennials, myself very much included, but also through direct political influence of being extremely close friends with Donald Trump. His wife, Linda McMahon, is a major Republican fundraiser and was a cabinet member under Trump. She was the director of Small Business Administration. And they have had a a long, fruitful relationship with Trump in which Trump has performed very often with, or at least been part of the show very often with uh, the WWF and then its later incarnation, World Wrestling Entertainment, WWE. And Trump learned a lot from that. That's actually a perfect segue to uh, Trump, maybe one of the other people who fits into this category. So you've written a book about Stanley. Correct. You've written a book now about Vince McMahon. And both of them and Trump are people whose lives don't fit into a neat biopic uh, rise and fall kind of story. It's a lot of rises and a lot of falls falls. and a lot Mm -hmm. of chaos. Now, having done two of these, how do you think about structuring a book like that? Oh, that's such a good question. And I wish I had some kind of systematic answer that I could bestow upon the world so that we could all imitate it. But (laughs) I mean, when it comes to the structure, so much of it comes down to the aesthetics of what the table of contents looks like to me. Hmm. That's going to sound so stupid, but once I've done all the research, I basically have a working document that is always in flux of the table of contents and the table of contents for, you know, the first two books, it was chronological, you know, I mean, just that periodization 
of going, okay, one chapter is talking about the story of this period can be extremely useful for me at least. And the structure starts to just make itself known to me. I, that sounds so stupid and mystical, but I, I tend to draw more inspiration for structure from fiction than from nonfiction. That was something I noticed that there's like a sense of, even though we're going linearly through time, yeah. there is a sense of theme in different sections of the book. The first section of the book is about fathers and sons and father-son yeah. relationships. Nailed the it, yeah. The second section of the book is about ruthless business tactics and how you build an empire and also what becomes of you once you yeah. become singularly focused on building an empire. And how you build an empire in the 21st century, which is you build it out of your yourself your brand your your own weird idiosyncrasies anxieties and complexities that's what wins now you know whether it's in the marketplace or in politics what tends to win is people who did what vince did before most people did which is you take your libidinal urges fears and just general preoccupations and you put them into mass media in a well-crafted way, or at least a provocatively crafted way, and the sky's the limit. You know, if you know your own id, or at least are really good at expressing your own id in ways that feel transgressive and feel like they're confusing as to whether they're real or fake, you can kind of get anywhere. Like, we don't know how to deal with that level of uncanniness. Vince figured that out before a lot of other people did. Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs threw them in there, listened to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something. Like very quickly, the voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of long form get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from 26.2 Team Milk and their new docuseries, Running Sucks. Is running the worst? Yeah. Do you love it? Do you hate it? I hate it so much. <laughs> I hate it so freaking much. That you're a real runner now! I hate it. <laughs> I'm Abby Ayers, a 37-year-old mom from Utah who found herself running across the Manhattan Bridge in my first race ever. Running Sucks celebrates women who run and the running communities that carry them across the finish line. Running helped me in so many ways postpartum. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. For every person like you, I'm telling you, you belong, and I'm telling you, you can do it. I never thought the words would leave my mouth, but yes, I'm planning on running a marathon. <laughs> I can't even say it without laughing, because, like, who would have thought? Watch Running Sucks at runningsuckstheseries.com and learn more about how Team Milk is helping women runners across the country conquer their next course. talk a little bit about sort of the nuts and bolts of putting something like this together. Go on. Yes. Many decades, 
hundreds of people referred to in this book. Probably hundreds of wrestlers just alone appear yeah, in the book. A lot of wrestlers. So when you're tackling something of this scale, like mm-hmm. what's your strategy? How do you prioritize? How do you say this is the important thing to do right now? Oh God. Here's the thing. I used to really struggle with that and I still do on some level, but I've learned how to mitigate it. Basically I have terrible ADHD and the biggest manifestation of my ADHD is I am very often paralyzed by choice and by prioritization. It's very hard for me to not see everything that I have to do as top priority and therefore nothing becomes the priority. So I've spent many years trying to do lists and trying to like order the lists of I should do this first and then that, and I would never stick to them. It would always then frustrate me that I hadn't stuck to them. So what I've come to do is trust my gut on a given day about what I should pick from amongst a kind of general jumble of core topics that are urgent. You know, I'm certainly guilty of occasionally going down paths that turn out to be busts or whatever, but I can usually generally tell, okay, this general topic area is something I should spend more time on. And I have some specific questions about that and other things. I just need to know the lay of the land, whatever, you know, but then there's this other thing that's about of equal importance. And then I wake up in the morning and I wish I could say that there is some journaling practice I do or whatever, but I basically drink my coffee, sit down at my computer and go, what just based on nothing feels right as to what I should work on among those, that grouping of, of things that are somewhat important to do or very important to do. And I can't say it works insofar as I've done alternate universe tests where I tried to write two books, not doing that, but it did allow me to write those two books. It was a mix of prioritizing generally, and then just kind of being a leaf on the wind and going like, my gut is telling me that today I should research the Saudis or, you know, my gut is telling me that today I should finally track down this wrestler or whatever. And I don't know. I wish I could say I had a better, I had a better answer than just going with my gut, but that is very often what it comes down to. Okay. So you go with your gut on one of these days and you find some wrestler uh, of the 1990s, uh, <laughs> God knows where, uh, God knows yeah. you know the state what? of their skeleton, and yeah. you bring up something that happened to them during their wrestling days, some interaction with Vince McMahon. I mean, God, the two people that you've written books for are like just like magnets for unflattering stories. I can't think of two people who have more unflattering stories associated with them, and. Simultaneously, these are vindictive, potentially even litigious people. How do you go about trying to get people to tell these stories that Mm. they're not supposed to be telling? These stories that really break some of the mystique of what was happening behind the scenes? How do I do it? Um, Sometimes you don't, (laughs) you know, I only have the interviews that I got as opposed to the many where people said no comment. I don't, I mean, very often the answer was either there's no way I'm going to talk about Vince if I ever want to work in this town again, or I'm broke. There's no way I'm going to talk to you unless you pay me. And, you know, I wasn't going to be able to get the, I mean, Obviously, approval from Vince and or the WWE was out of the question, you know, and I wasn't going to pay for interviews that that too was out of the question. So I ended up with a lot of people who wouldn't talk to me, but you just keep plucking away, plugging away rather until you plucking actually is an interesting little uh, Freudian slip there, because sometimes it does feel like you're trying to get through all the no's until you find that one yes beneath all the no's. And I mostly had luck with the older generation of wrestlers because if you did not come up, or at least if you were not starting in Vince McMahon's world, there's a much greater likelihood 
that you sort of have the independence of thought and sometimes even the contractual independence because you signed an older version of the contract and you're not bound to certain kinds of things. The older ones were much more willing to talk to me and the younger ones, you know, I'll, I'll reveal to the listeners of your wonderful podcast that the book itself, the core narrative ends in 1999. And part of that was that Vince's life is just too eventful and I couldn't cram it all in there. But also part of it was I, I need more time to pass because yeah. as time goes on, you're much more likely to get an answer at all and or uh, an honest answer from somebody who has been affected by the subject of your work. So honestly, time, being selective, and the big thing is just being a decent human, not treating people like they're lab animals. People like being treated with dignity. You know, Jamel Bouley had a great uh, essay today about dignity in the Times, and I've been thinking about it a lot. And if you can treat your interview subjects with dignity, you then become somebody who gets a good referral when you say, hey, is there any chance you could put me in touch with so-and-so who you mentioned? And it's a lot better to get a referral than just to hear the name and then cold call as though you didn't have that relationship with the previous person. So that's as, as good as advice as I can give is just be a decent human. Your conversations with people should feel like they're having a conversation with another person as opposed to a question asking robot. And that can take you very far is what I have found in my little life. What led you into writing? How did you end up here? How did I end up here? I love writing. It's funny. I actually just learned very recently going through my grandfather's archives, my grandfather, Robert A. Reisman Sr., who was born in 1919. I found out that, well, he had served this, I knew as a youngster, he had been an officer, an artillery officer in World War II. At the end of World War II, when he was an officer stationed in liberated or you know, so-called liberated Paris, he was writing letters home saying, I don't want to come home and work for dad's company, which was an electrical equipment company. I want to stay here and be a foreign correspondent. Mm. And there's this letter where my great uncle just writes to him and goes, don't be an idiot. Like you have to come home and run the company. You're the one dad's counting on. And lo and behold, he did. This was fascinating to me because I never knew my grandfather had any interest in being a writer. It, it makes total sense in retrospect because he was extremely gifted with words, both in the written form and in those delivered through speech. But I had no idea that this particular profession of writing, that you know, being a journalist was something that he'd really wanted to do. But, you know, my father also became a writer. This is later in my life. But he wrote a book, a biography of Big Bill Brunzi, who was a very influential blues musician who died in 1958. So maybe it's just there's something in my line of we have people who like the fun of words and the terror of words and all of that. As for me personally, I just loved writing in class. I mean, it's as simple as that. Writing is something where you say, well, you know, when did you want to be a writer? Well, unlike say, there's certain skills or trades where you have a very clear delineation of, okay, this is when I first picked that thing up or I first went to school for that thing. But like I was writing, you're writing in a clean arc from the earliest days of your schooling, if not sooner. And it was always the thing I was best at, but also enjoyed. And I thought I was not going to be a writer. I thought I was going to be an actor because we had this very robust and wonderful theater program at my high school in Oak Park, Illinois, suburban Chicago. And I really just adored the practice of being on stage. But then I got to college and I kind of just got sick of the social structures and expectations of being a theater kid. I was just not interested in a lot of the, if you'll forgive the word, drama that was involved in that. <laughs> now, of course, the irony is I then was like, well, I'm going to go into journalism where, you know, there's none of that, which is, of course, ridiculous. But I didn't know that at the time. I joined uh, my school paper, which is the kind of thing you can just do back when you're in college if you're lucky. And it was kind of an organic growth from there. I mean, we can get into any detail you want on that, but that was sort of the real 
beginning of me going, oh, maybe this could be something I do professionally, I guess. And what were your like first professional experiences of trying to pitch stuff and write for editors and that kind of stuff? Yeah. Well, at, at the, at the, I mean, I might as well just say where I was at Harvard and I went, I was writing for the Harvard Crimson and, you know, writing for a college newspaper is something that I think everyone should have the opportunity to do. It's such a beautiful institution, the college newspaper, especially independent college newspapers. I really treasure the training I got at the Crimson. You know, I went to college for all four years and got my degree. And most of what I learned was by working 40 hours a week at the Crimson, first as a reporter, then as an editor, and then as one of the two arts chairs, Mm. uh, the heads of the arts section, which I think there is no arts section anymore. I think they're even getting rid of the print newspaper, if I recall correctly, which is unfortunate, but I guess I get it. And, you know, it's different back then because your pitches don't have to be as well formed and you can kind of just know somebody who is one of the editors and say, yo, wouldn't it be wild if I wrote an editorial about how this musician isn't good anymore? You know, and there's a chance you might run that. It's, you know, I, I, I but I did learn a lot when I started dab, dipping my toe into the real professional journalism world, which initially was actually in public radio of all things as a reporting intern. I was an intern, but I was just a reporter. I was just unpaid, (laughs) but I was a, I was a full-time reporter for about a month and a half at uh, WBAI, which is this very far left radio station in downtown Manhattan. I kind of stumbled into that and you know, that was fascinating because I would pitch stuff, but I didn't know anything about New York at that point. And it was very local, specific New York reporting. So I had to kind of sit at the feet of the masters of that organization. And it was very useful. And I think, you know, the thing I eventually learned in the long arc of my, you know, whatever career is learning that if it interests you and if you can start writing it and it somewhat makes sense, then follow that instinct as opposed to what I did for a long time, which was I would try to pitch what I thought the editor would find interesting, which just leads you to being a trend chaser and no editor wants to run run that. They want to find the next thing. And what I I mean, maybe this is just the kind of stuff I've written in arts and culture and entertainment journalism, which is not all I've written, but that's the majority of the stuff I've written. The people in the position who can hire you or or commission something from you, they want to be with their ears to the ground, hearing about the next development in whatever, whatever the topic that you're writing about is. And the only way they can find that stuff is if people who have niche interests in things that are currently narrow, but are going to be wider, come to them. And that, that's been in many ways, the secret of whatever level of success I've had has been going, hey, here's this movie that nobody talks about, but that I love. Maybe if I write about it, we'll find that more people than just me love it. And that is very, sometimes that's not the case, but a lot of the time that's how it works out because that's how we experience the world is very often in terms of no one's talking about this thing that matters to me. And then when that thing finally gets talked about, you get very enthusiastic. You're like, look, 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 the, the thing I've been talking about with in my head or with my friends, it's a phenomenon that happens to other people. And then all of a sudden you've got a viral article on your hands. I haven't actually heard someone describe it that way, but that is if I don't know if it's a good way to make a career, but that's what I like. Like I like people flying their flag, their Mm -hmm. whatever Mm -hmm. weird obsession you have. And a lot of what sometimes I feel like the journalism and media world has gone a bit astray is I will talk to someone and they'll be like, well, I want to write about climate. And I'm like, right. do you like know a lot about climate? It's really important. I was like, yeah, I get that I it's know, important, but you don't have any person. You're not bringing anything to it. You have to talk about the stuff that you have some understanding of. You know, what worked for me, and I think the only aspect of my weird little career that I can really translate to other people is 
don't disregard any of your interests or experiences. Mm. Don't dismiss out of hand anything that's happened to you or that you have found interesting and gotten some level of even amateur expertise on. Because very often the stuff that you think, well, nobody cares about that, is the stuff that a lot of people care about and don't know other people care about, or is stuff that upon learning about it, you will surprise and delight people. So, you know, you don't want to be a trend chaser. You always want to go with something where you have some degree of interest and expertise, and it's not being talked about yet, as best you can. I mean, as if only it were that simple, but still. It brings you together with people who are also interested in that, and then maybe those people will follow you somewhere else. The very first thing where I noticed your name and that I wanted to follow you as a writer was that you wrote about the Brothers Hernandez Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. And that is among my favorite pieces of art, period. Oh, it's magnificent. Yes. And not only is it magnificent work, I actually have a a book that's like their collected interviews. It's like a, a guide to them. And there's only like there's like three really long interviews in the book. And it's like these people who've made this incredible art, these brothers, there's really only like a handful of serious and in-depth things written about it. It took those three or four people to get out of their seat and go like, this work's mm-hmm. important. I'm going to do a 25,000 word interview with them about it. Absolutely. I wish this were not the case, but mainstream media validation remains something that really matters to getting people aware of anything. News outlets, media outlets, journalism outlets, even if they don't necessarily deserve it anymore because of all the sort of pay for play stuff, people still do go to us for information about, well, okay, I'm hit with this blizzard of things. What should I pick? And it's interesting. I feel like you really do have to kind of just mine yourself, but not necessarily in terms of like personal essay writing. You know, that's the thing I kind of wanted to caution there is like, I think that well has kind of run dry or at least it or either or that or we're flooded with it. I can't figure it out. But I don't think there's that much demand at this point for personal essays about kind of anything Mm. unless you it's really hard to break out of the pack for that. So what I always tell people is like mind yourself, but don't mind yourself just in terms of, oh, here's this experience that I had that I could tell the story of. Think next level. Think, okay, well, what's this thing that I know something about that is not being talked about? And then you go from there. So there's one side of that coin that's like, the Brothers Hernandez, where me and you feel some connection because we are both great enthusiasts of their work. And then there's another side where you're writing about the Marvel world or the WF world, where... Not only are they mainstream, they're these intense fandoms where mm-hmm. different people want to claim a cultural ownership over these oh, experiences. Yeah. Oh, they, you know, it, it should be like this. It was, you know, it should be like that. It was that way. I, you know, your opinions on comics are terrible. <laughs> How do you approach that kind of writing where instead of, oh my God, no one's writing about this, in fact, people are dedicating their whole lives to these fandoms. You know, it's funny. I've almost sort of, once fandom kind of reached a critical mass, especially at least when it came to Marvel, Yeah, that was kind of when I got out of the game because once it becomes that level of mainstream, yeah. I feel like, it's not that I'm saying it's not worth writing about, but my style of writing is no longer as applicable. Right. Because- very often, I, I will completely admit, I'm relying on the what wrestlers would call cheap heat of discovery right. of like, here's this thing that you didn't even know was a topic area. Let me tell you about it. But now people kind of have a knowledge of, you know, this gets back to your previous question, which was mainstream media outlets matter in terms of validation. And I really lucked out that I was working at New York Magazine And they were willing to let me write about comics, which is something that does not usually get mainstream media validation. But once you start writing about it, and then 
it, it kind of, I'm not saying I'm the reason Marvel got big, but you know, while you're writing about it, Marvel's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then soon everybody's doing the like deep dive on where this character comes from in the right. comics or, right. you know, here's the amazing story of the creator of this person, this, this figure. And very often it feels almost like a Borges story, you know, the one about rewriting Don Quixote, where it's like the text can be the exact same thing that I wrote in 2013, but I wouldn't publish it now because the, the atmosphere is so different. Even if it was really good in 2013, I feel like the age of me reinforcing corporate properties with more just gee whiz than critical eye I think not that I wasn't being critical, but you know, I, I was, I did have this writing style that was much more catered to a sense of wonder and discovery. And as the world has gotten worse and as I have learned more about the industries that I write about, it just gets harder and harder, even just on an emotional level to say, Hey, isn't it cool that there's this property that we're all fans of? My hope is in both true believer and in, Ringmaster, I tried to write mainly for a layperson, just because that's the majority of the population. But I never want to insult the fandom. I'm mm. never there to say you're all idiots, you got duped. It's never that. I don't I I love people who are in fandoms. It's not the way I engage with things, but I totally get that. What I try to do is just stick as close to the truth as close to an interpretable narrative as I can and present my interpretation based on the facts. And if people want to disregard it out of hand, they're going to disregard it out of hand. I'm not writing for those people, but you know, it can be hard. There are going to be people who just write you off. I think with Stan, it's more of a problem yeah. because to use, to use um, wrestling terminology, you know, Stan is a baby face. People want to root for Stan. And like just in the culture and in the marketplace of people who buy books, you're more likely to find people who want to root for Stan. And my book is not a hatchet job, but it's definitely a critical look at this very fallible human figure. And that turns a lot of people off just sort of as this is desecrating something that I think is sacred. With Vince, I think my hope is more people will pick it up because Vince is kind of paved the way for this book. Vince is somebody who has portrayed himself not as a baby face. Very literally in the ring, he's portrayed himself as the opposite number from the baby face in wrestling terminology, which is the heel. The person who's sort of deliberately trying to provoke feelings of anger and disgust and resentment from you. And so anything that's critical in that book, my hope is because Vince has already sort of portrayed himself as a transgressive figure, it won't be as alienating but I, I think people are probably going to find things that are surprising to them in this one. And I, I hope there isn't just an a priori dismissal, which happened for a lot of people with Stan Lee. I think that'll be less prevalent here because people are kind of used to somebody being critical of Vince, even if that journalistic eye has not really been applied to a book length project. So you said earlier that you didn't feel like the personal essay or writing about yourself was a fruitful path or at least not a fruitful path for you. <laughs> yeah. These days, at least there was a time when I thought it was going to be my future and that's not where I'm at now, but yeah, go on. Okay. Interesting. So as I understand it, you are transitioning right now. I am. Aren't we all? But yes, no, I I came out as trans on the summer solstice of last year of 2022. Not that you'd know it from my voice. I'm not changing uh, a ton about myself in terms of my physical body, but I I have been on farm since June of last year. I dress femme. I think femme. I am on team Femme, but also team trans. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I haven't, you know, shaved my beard or done all that much in the way of changing my voice is I just feel like, I don't know, I feel like the playing field should be opened up to different expressions of gender. And I don't care if people see me as something in between. That's fine. 
you know, I don't even really know. I mean, I could get into all kinds of gender theory about how I consider myself. I don't want to bore everybody, but I have been living a trans life of transgression and hopefully transcendence since uh, last year. I'm interested in how that interfaces with your life as a writer and putting together a book like this. Like, what is it like to be having this personal transformation while you're also, you know, writing 700 to-do lists of wrestlers from the <laughs> early 90s that you need well, to it's email. Funny. It's funny. You're getting it a little backwards because what happened was I finished, well, I, I basically was three or four days away from finishing the first draft, like having a completed first draft. And then Providence Pride happened here in Providence, Rhode Island, where I live. And I went and I had this very revelatory experience and realized like, you know, I, I want to live as a lady and then finished the draft. And also that was the week that uh, Vince McMahon first got hit with the allegations from the Wall Street Journal about sexual misconduct that led to his eventual stepping back. And all of those things felt tied up together. Maybe cause and effect are, you know, not so clearly delineated here, but it did feel like Working on this book really disabused me of what remaining notions I had about the value of holding on to manhood. Mm. If people want to identify as men, that's fantastic. May you be a good man and try and dismantle the unjust system from within. But I'm defecting. Like I can't do anything with manhood, at least in the society in which I live. And what I've decided to do is kind of be diasporic in a way. And part of that comes out of the working on the book, which was I saw manhood in this new way through looking at Vince's trauma and the way that trauma was then turned into traits that were trauma inducing for other people. And part of my transition moment was having spent a couple of years in the head of one of the most macho men you'll ever meet, Vince McMahon, and kind of realizing, well, I don't really want to be a part of that. But the other part, though that's less negative, is watching wrestling as an adult was as a queer adult. I already identified as queer. I'd been out as bisexual since 2016, and my partner is trans, and we we watched a lot of wrestling together. And especially watching with my partner, I got this whole other perspective on how queer and trans wrestling is. Even at its most heteronormative in terms of the explicit text, the implicit text is one of total gender anxiety and a longing to express your gender in a way that would be completely out of place outside the safe space of wrestling. So seeing through that queer and trans lens while I was watching all this wrestling, some of it, a lot of it, wrestling that I had watched when I was a youth, it was very revealing. And subsequent to coming out, to answer the other part of your question of how it has kind of interfaced with my work, it's given me a lot of confidence. You know, I mean, I I hope that doesn't sound conceited. I just, being in a mode that works for me has been enormously helpful for me as a writer because I have so much more belief that I have a voice that is unique and could perhaps have something to say. I spent a lot of my life writing and constantly thinking nobody cares who gives a crap. And I think it's not like that was all gender dysphoria, but I think a lot of the bad voices in my head were not dissimilar or dis or unrelated to the gender dysphoria that I was feeling. And now, you know, there's still plenty of problems in my life and in my brain, but having that particular burden lifted has been so helpful for being able to have brain. I mean, it's the, my partner's always talking about how the key text for understanding to be a writer is a room of one's own, you know, the Virginia Wolf. It's like, if you don't have the headspace, if it's too crowded in your head and your life, you can't be a great writer. You can't even be necessarily a good writer. It really is, you need to have that space cleared out. And I've been very lucky to have that space materially through various reasons. Um, But now I feel like 
I have a better handle on kind of what I want to say, even if it's not personal, even if it's not me saying, here's my personal essay about being trans, I just feel a little better about contributing my voice, I guess. I don't know. I, I hope that didn't sound too full of myself. Not at all. No, I mean, you've been incredibly open about it and therefore I'm like comfortable asking you questions that maybe no, I would go have ahead. Like, yeah. um, shied away from. Like, no, before. that's part of what I want to do is like, I'm not, you know, there's a million wonderful trans people out there who are voices. And I'd like to add to that chorus of being like, look, I'm a journalist. I know what it's like to not know a topic or not know a person or not know a community and have nothing but dumb questions. But I'm a big believer in asking dumb questions as long as you ask them politely. And so I would love to answer anything you have to ask. So go ahead. So one thing that became clear to me, we used to have an app, the long form app, and I was trying yes. to create these, um, these catalogs basically of every long form story a writer had written. And um, it makes you very tied to your name, right? Oh, Change yeah. your name. You just become a different person. Now you got two totally. pools. You just lost everything you wrote before mm -hmm. you change your name. And I don't think that just pertains to names. I think it pertains to identity as a whole. If I were to pick up the Stan Lee book, I think it would say he in the yeah. biography. Yeah, it said he and, back then. Absolutely. And now I've got Ringmaster and it says she. But they're both by the same person. It still says Abraham Reisman. I know. Well, that the cover of Ringmaster is kind of a funny story. I similarly was approving the cover like right when I was coming out as trans, which I did not expect that timing to be happening the way it was, but it was. And I had like already approved the cover. And then I was like, I feel like I want to add some femininity to my name. And I pretty quickly decided I wanted to be Abraham Josephine Reisman. But I didn't want to mess with the graphic design of the cover. There's no room for the No, jo there's no room for the Josephine. It needs to be what it is. So I figured, okay, in the inside cover, we'll we'll have, you know, on the jacket, it'll say Abraham Josephine Reisman. But I'm going to confuse people for a little bit, maybe for the rest of my life, who knows. But I, don't, I actually love my name. My birth name is not something I'm ashamed of. Abraham is something that I treasure. And that's why I use it still in the byline. I'm kind of ripping off two of my heroes, Charlie Jane Anders, the sci-fi writer, and Justin Vivian Bond, the performer, by doing the whole boy name, girl name, last name formulation. Does it change the reporting experience at all for you? When I'm about to find out. I Well, because I, I, I've got some stuff in the fire that I can't talk about. Some irons in the fire, but they're very exciting. And what's interesting is this would sort of be my return to a big set of reporting projects, which I've mostly been, I've been doing things here and there, like the Hernandez brothers uh, thing you talked about. But mostly I've been sort of in a getting ringmaster ready to go mode and pitching next projects mode. But now those projects are starting to come to fruition. And I'm very curious to see how it changes the reporting experience. So far it has not, but I have mostly dealt with people who either I already had a relationship with prior to transition and they know and trust me, or it's been people that I've met and my gender just doesn't really factor into it. But part of the reason that was, I mean, you know, this was happening at all was this was, I was writing this, this was a pandemic book, Ringmaster. I wasn't meeting people in person. So it was less of a factor. I wasn't out as trans while I was reporting most of it. But even if I had been, it wouldn't have been as much of an issue. This time around with this next set of projects I'm working on, I'm going to have to do a lot of in-person stuff because that's sort of what I want to do anyway. It's not just like, oh, now I'm forced to go talk to people in person. You get much better data when you talk to somebody in person. So I don't know how it's going to affect things. I, I am not above, you know, being slightly less femme if I need to do it for self-protection reasons. Like if I have to do some reporting in the fascist state of Florida or something, you know, then I may have to mask it up a little bit so I don't get detained at the border or whatever. But in general, I'm going to roll the dice. I'm going to dress the way I want to dress. I mean, I've been very lucky to be in communities so far that have been very accepting of me. Now, I am fully aware that that is not necessarily representative of the majority of the population of the world, but I've been lucky and I hope 
my luck won't run out, I guess. You know, I think their people are often much more humane in one-on-one interactions than they are with their beliefs about a whole population in an abstract sense. You know, I've interviewed a lot of people who I'm sure who have told me they voted for Trump and dealing with me even before transition, as long as you're approaching them professionally and it's very clear what you're there to do and what they feel comfortable with, you know, you can talk to people. So hopefully it won't throw it all. The next thing that I'm working on, the next big thing is in the entertainment industry. So I doubt I'll be the first trans person that most people have ever encountered but it is something I'm thinking about. So, and there's just the general safety concerns, you know, just being trans in public is something that you have to kind of be sort of aware of, but not let dominate your life in terms of, well, what could happen. And would this transformation be something that you wanted to write about? Like, do you, do you think about it in terms of your, I actually have a little bit. There's a, I have an essay that is coming out at some point soon, but it's all about how, how wrestling and transness for me are kind of wrapped up and that'll be sort of the first time I've written about being trans. Even there, I didn't want to get too emotional, I guess. It wasn't about emotional pornography. I wanted it to be about, this was a common phenomenon, the way gender and wrestling interacted for me. I was not alone in this. It's not so much saying like, look at me. It's more like, here's this kind of anecdotal story that tells you about a lot of people's experiences of enjoying wrestling, which is, is especially for millennials, we were hitting puberty. We were all starting to sort ourselves into gender roles and who's, who's supposed to be bullied and who's supposed to be the bully and all of that. And then we all started watching wrestling because it was 1997 through 1999. Well, through 2001, really when wrestling was at its peak and we were all at this impressionable age, getting all this gender information that on the one hand was repugnant, but on the other hand had this sort of cryptic underlayer of transgression that was very appealing. And I I returned to that in this essay so I can talk about like what revisiting wrestling the second time really was like. And hopefully I think that's also a somewhat representative experience. I'm probably already saying too much about the essay, but I wanted to, yeah. So um, I know you said you couldn't talk directly about what you wanted to do, but like as a format, as something to like dig into, are you like, does this biography form kind of work for you? I've really dug it. This next project that I can't talk about is a biography or at least biographical in nature, even if it's not, you know, similarly to the Vince McMahon book, it's not his entire story in this book because there was only so much I could fit in. And, uh, You know, I'm trying to get a little, I guess that actually answers the question. What I'm trying to do is use what I learned about writing a biography, a full biography of somebody who's already deceased so you can tell their full story with Stan Lee. I learned from that, you know, how to do a biography. Then with Vince, what I learned, and a lot of this was a credit to my wonderful frontline editor, who is my spouse, S.I. Rosenbaum, is you can tell the story of Vince that you need to tell for this book without telling his entire lifespan. There is a story to be told, and that's the most important thing. So I think what I'm trying to do with this upcoming project, and hopefully future projects after that, is not necessarily try to think of myself as like a biographer, as that that's the entirety of it, but rather kind of use the framework of the chronology of a person's life as a way to talk about something bigger, you know, like I, I lo- I'm very proud of true believer, but I think if I could do it again, I would have thought bigger about what are some of the more global human implications of both this guy's life and of our understanding of human psychology that we get when we see his life. I think I did that much better. And again, my editor, S.I. Rosenbaum was very helpful with that, but I want to expand that. I want to go Okay, if we're using, it's like a good biopic. A good biopic doesn't tell you the person's whole entire story. A good biopic picks its spots and goes, this is the stuff that is important here. This is the stuff that's important there. And maybe you only have stuff that's in this one confined section, but it tells you in microcosm what you need to know. You know, so I'm, I'm hopefully going to keep using the biographical form because I like people. 
you know, much more than I like institutions, I like people as an object of study. But I think people are often the gateway to an understanding of an institution or an era or a phenomenon or whatever. So yeah, I guess I'll try continuing with the biography format, but I want to use it to go into weird directions. And my dream at some point is I want to write about my aforementioned grandfather and kind of write my big fat Jewish book, which I don't think the world is ready for, nor am I ready for it. But at some point, I do want to be able to write kind of a meditation on Jewish identity as far as I see it. But I have to sort of earn my stripes before I can pull something like that off. I really appreciate this interview. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. That's another episode of the Long Form Podcast in the books. Thanks very much to Gabriela Saldivia for editing this episode. Thanks to Megan Valley for doing the show notes. Thanks to my co-hosts, Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky. And of course, thanks to everyone over at Vox Media who help us make the show. We'll be back with a new episode next week. Support for Long Form this week came from Listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The Listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier.